morning. We'll see if I can be quick today. But it's funny because as I was writing this out, it was a couple pages longer than normal, so we might be here for a while. But try to keep it short. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Titus. Uh, You'll notice the bulletin says 2 Timothy, but... It was too late. We'd already printed everything before I realized that 2 Timothy was covered last week. So, uh, I had a choice of a couple of different things from our daily Bible reading, and I wasn't sure about any of them, really. And then um, I went with Titus, and, and it's funny how God has used this letter a couple of times in my life this week, um, and I wasn't even expecting that. So, um, hopefully... What we learn today and what we look at today will be a blessing to you and an encouragement to you and um, helpful for us as the body of Christ. So the letter to Titus, written by Paul, comes between the time that he writes the first letter to Timothy and the second letter to Timothy. It comes between Paul's first Roman imprisonment and his final Roman imprisonment and death. So not the last letter that he wrote, but very close to it. And what's interesting is Titus doesn't figure prominently among the stories of the New Testament. He's never mentioned in Acts. And everything we know about him only comes from what Paul has said in a couple of other letters before. But what we learn about Titus, and as he even says in the first chapter... In verse 4 of Titus, he says, To Titus, a true son in our common faith. There's only one other person Paul ever calls a son, and that's Timothy. So Titus and Timothy are two of the closest disciples of Paul, missionaries with Paul, young church leaders with Paul. And so it's interesting that he's not mentioned more, but... Titus, think of him kind of like a fixer. He is someone who Paul sends to very difficult church situations to bring the gospel, to help encourage the church, and to help develop Christian character among people living in a culture that is squarely against the gospel of Christ. Uh, Paul sends Titus to the church in Corinth, And there's a lot of trouble there. He sends uh, Titus to Dalmatia. And he also sends Titus to the island of Crete. And the letter of Titus is is, um, written by Paul um, while Titus himself is in Crete, trying to encourage the church there. So we don't have time. We could probably spend an entire sermon trying to understand the culture of the island of Crete, but you might already know a little bit about them. Uh, If you've ever heard someone called a Cretan, um, that has been something that has lasted for ages. In fact, 200 years before Paul, and Paul even quotes this in the letter, 200 years before Paul ever wrote anything, one of Crete's very own famous philosophers wrote uh, in verse 12, of chapter 1, you can see this. One of them, a prophet of their own, wrote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. In a 
pagan society of the Greco-Roman world, Crete stood above everyone else. And even, even the pagans uh, of the Greco-Roman world thought that the Cretans were bad. Pretty bad. Terrible. Uh, the Greek kritizo means liar. And so if you're called a kritizo, you're a liar. And it's interesting that Paul is going to play off of this idea because he's writing to Titus who has to go to the island of Crete and there's multiple churches there and he has to help these people, these young Christians, learn what it means to be a gospel-centered community. There's a couple of major issues going on on the island of Crete for Christians that Paul sends Titus to help to fix. One of those is like we just said, the culture itself, the pagan culture itself. So on the island of Crete was generally considered the birthplace of the god Zeus, and so Zeus worship was popular. And if you knew anything about Zeus, then you can start to deduce what the people of Crete were like because they thought they needed to emulate Zeus. So there's Zeus worship going on, but there's also a heavy Jewish presence there and Judaism as often does, follows Paul's teaching, <laughs> follows Paul all around. And within the church of Jesus on the island of Crete, there are Jew corrupt Jewish leaders who are trying to mix the religion of Judaism, the words of Jesus, and on top of that you have the religion of Zeus permeating as well. So Titus has a tall order in front of him. He's supposed to go and he's supposed to help write the ship on Crete. And Paul is very pointed in how he can do that. This letter is to Titus to give him information, to give him teaching, to give him encouragement, and to give him a way forward. And Paul's deeply concerned with the island of Crete. So he actually did not bring the gospel here first. By the time Paul and Titus come to Crete, uh, there's already a church here. There's already a Christian community here. And uh, what's generally agreed upon is that on the day of Pentecost, there must have been some Jews from Crete there listening to Peter and the other disciples who gave their lives to Christ and who went back to Crete and began to set up this church community. But there's been no clear leadership, no clear oversight, and no one has come to help until now. And so Titus has a tall order. Titus' job is to encourage and develop a gospel-centered community. And I say that because Paul, and I think he makes that clear in this letter, sees the only way forward, the only way that Christians, that the church in Crete, could have any impact on this deeply pagan culture is through the growth and flourishing of a gospel-centered community, a gospel-centered church. There's two places in the letter to Titus where Paul gives one of the best examples, the best paragraphs on the gospel. And I want to start there because if you're going to build a gospel community, you have to build it on the gospel. And if you don't know the gospel, then you can't build a gospel-centered community or a gospel-centered church. And Paul, in his mind, sees no way forward for the church on Crete unless they are firmly rooted 
in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So uh, if you turn to chapter 3, we're going to kind of skip around here. Turn to chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 4. I just want to read to you what Paul says is the gospel of Jesus. And I want you to look for the ways in which God acts towards humanity. Look for the things that God does for humans. So after he lists the evilness found in the heart of all men, in the hearts of all men, which pales in comparison to the Cretan culture, then he says this in verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul wants to make very clear, and it's so important that we remind ourselves of this, is that the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the work of Christ for our salvation was kindness from God, was love from God, was a mercy given by God. It was not deserved, it was not earned, it was not owed. It was nothing we could accomplish on our own. It was simply out of the kindness and love of God that he offered his son for our salvation. And that means that we, if you accept that, that means that you are washed and regenerated. You are renewed of the Holy Spirit. Your life is cleaned. The soap of the gospel washes the evil sinfulness of your heart. And that means we've been justified by his grace. That means that the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection secures for us legal good standing with God. That when God looks at us, he no longer sees our evil works. He sees Christ's righteousness in our stead. If we could truly understand the Cretan culture, we would understand how shocking this kind of thing would be because Cretan culture was all about selfishness, all about pleasure, all about living for whatever makes me happy. And even the rest of the Greco-Roman world looked at that and said, that is terrible. They are horrible people. They are evil sinners. And Paul paints this beautiful picture of the gospel and says that there is a power within Christ that can clean even that. And then he says, if you look up in chapter 2 of, uh, at verse 11, this is the other time, there's two times that he lays out the gospel. And so he says, here's what the gospel is, and he says, here's what it can lead to in your life. In verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Ungodliness and worldly lusts is a summary of the society on Crete. It is ungodly and it is full of worldly lusts and the gospel of Jesus changes people from lovers of that 
to lovers of God. And it helps us live soberly. I, I want you to notice this as well. You're going to see this word. I don't know if you highlight in your Bible or if you're taking notes or writing anything down. But I want you to note as we go through here how many times you see the word sober or, or soberly. This means self-controlled, and it is a major, major theme in the book of Titus. The gospel-centered community of Jesus on the island of Crete was to be known for their self-control. So here's the first time we see it, and we're going to see it several more times as we quickly look through this letter. We should live soberly because of the gospel of Jesus. Because it has washed my heart clean, I should live self-controlled. I should live righteously. I should live godly in this present age, always looking forward. And if you remember when we, did, uh, when we looked at 1 Thessalonians, um, Paul always brings up this fact that Christians are to be looking forward to the coming of Jesus, to the coming of God back to this earth again. Always looking for that. So look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our, God, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who did what? He gave himself for us. Why? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people who would then be zealous for good works. Paul is describing a community of people on this island that would be radically opposed to general society. That those who weren't part of this would look at and say, whoa, you are different. There is something totally different about you. You're not living for yourself. You're not living for your own pleasure. You're living for something else. Why would you do that? Because it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't make sense not to make yourself happy on the island of Crete. After all, Zeus, the patron god, was all about making himself happy. His loyalty was to whatever felt good to him. And so a gospel-centered community is calling people to live radically different from that. But not just because that's just something different to do. Not just because maybe that'll shock people to wake up and change their ways. They're called to live this way. Why? Because of the kindness and the love of God. Because of God's good pleasure to save sinners. I really want you to hear that. Because what Paul's going to say going forward is gonna, he's going to call Christians, he's going to call this church to live differently and radically. And he's going to call it, them to do it in a way that is simply to reflect God's kindness and love. Not for personal gain, not for any sort of standing, not for growing numbers, not to revolutionize the entire, uh, to revolutionize, uh, to change the entire island. Not for any of that. But simply, as a disciple of Christ, to do what Jesus did and share the kindness and love of God, freely, expecting nothing in return. And Paul is convinced that that is the mindset and the attitude and the good work that will grow these churches and that will have an impact on this society. So let's look at a couple of ways real quick, a couple of areas in which Paul says, okay, here's how you do this now. Here's what I want you to do. Titus, here's what you need to develop in the churches on Crete. Three places. 
Three places that Christians on Crete are supposed to reflect the kindness and love and the gospel of Jesus. The first place is within the community of believers. There needs to be godly leadership. I want to read to you real quick. There's two points in this letter where Paul gives us an idea of exactly what's going on, and it's tied directly to the current leadership of the church in Crete. If you look at chapter 1, in verse 10, it says this, There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, that's the Judaizers, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Rebuke them sharply, therefore, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. They profess to know God, in verse 16, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Later on, near the very end of his letter in, in chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped, such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Within the churches on Crete, there is corrupt leadership. Personally, they are greedy. They are in this for what they can gain. They're marrying Jewish religion with Christian, Jesus' true teaching, with Christian teaching. They're also marrying Zeus worship with Jesus worship. And it's causing a problem. It's causing Cretan Christians to look just like the rest of the world and not like Jesus. And so Paul says, Titus, that's the first thing you need to do in the church is you need to change the leadership. So he says this, Here, here's what I want you to do. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. For this reason I left you in Crete, Titus, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And here's what these people need to be like. If a man is blameless, if he's the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless, that's elder or pastor even. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Here's what they should be. Hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, that's self-controlled in their thinking, just, holy, self-controlled, that's sober-minded again holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. There's a deep need for the leadership to change, for the leadership to be men who are focused solely on living like Jesus, who exemplify these qualities. Why? So that they can teach and lead and exhort and encourage and convict and speak against false teachings and that they can show the rest of the people in this community of grace how to follow Christ in what they think, in their theology, and in what they do, in their practice. That wasn't being shown to the people 
to the Christians on Crete. If you want to know what was going on, just focus on the list of what they're not supposed to be doing, and you'll get a good idea of what things were going on in these churches. And what's interesting is the things that these leaders were doing were the same way, it was the same things that non-Christians on the same island were doing. So what's the difference? What does it matter? Why believe in Jesus? He's just like everyone else. And so Titus was to change the leadership, bring in godly leaders to contrast everything that had gone on before and to help encourage a community fueled and founded on the gospel of Jesus. So that's the first thing Titus needs to do. And then the second thing comes in chapter two, and that is to develop and encourage grace-fueled interpersonal relationships among the body first. Within this community, within each of the churches themselves and within the larger body of Christ on this island, there was to be deep interpersonal relationships. People weren't supposed to live as Christians alone or unknown, just coming in, just leaving, having no relationship, having no support. To Paul, that is a recipe for disaster because he uh, lists exactly how everybody, and I hope you'll see that there's not one person here today who's not part of this list, how everybody who claims the name of Christ and comes together in his community, how everybody should be treating and living with each other. In chapter 2, he says this, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, Titus. You need to teach people that this is the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And here it is. That the older men be sober, self-controlled, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, so just everything I just said, the same for them, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they also admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And likewise, exhort the young men to be, what? Sober-minded, self-controlled in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility sound speech that cannot be condemned. Something important to the Greco-Roman world was the household, the family. That was an important unit within the culture. And so Paul says, here's how the family of Christ should look. And it should look completely different than the rest of the world. So he starts with the older men who in this culture and in this time, older men were by nature of, their, of who they were as men, were on top. Whether they deserved it or not, whether they were good leaders or not, they simply had all of the power. And that's the way it was. And so Paul says, well, then I'm going to go to that part first. And we're going to talk to the older men. And how your leadership goes, that's how the rest will follow. So, the older men of the church of Jesus on Crete should be self-controlled in all things. They should be reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and in patience. In a 
non-Christian Cretan family, the father, the one in charge of it all, could be whatever he wanted to be, could rule his home however he wanted to rule his home, whatever made him happy, whatever was best for him. It doesn't mean there weren't people who cared, but what it means is that more often than not, I mean, if Paul's saying this, I'm going to have to guess that more often than not it meant that the, old, that the leader of the house was more concerned about himself and what made him happy than anyone else. And Paul says, that's not to, how you are to be. And so he says the same thing for the older women. And then he draws this interesting, um, well, he gives this interesting command. And he doesn't explicitly say it. Well, he, he does, actually. He does say it. He says, let the older men and let the older women admonish or teach the younger men and the younger women. This is why these are interpersonal relationships. This is why um, it's important that the church of Christ not be completely individualistic. Because the wisdom and the learning of those who are older needs to be given to those who are younger. And those who are younger need to be close with those who are older. And do you see it's, it's, a, it's a relationship of giving and taking, of helping, and encouraging, and supporting, and teaching, and correcting. That's what the church of Jesus Christ on Crete was supposed to be about. In Cretan culture, like I said, they worshiped Zeus, and we kind of talked a little bit about, but if you know anything about Zeus, he was all about himself. And so it was fashionable in that day for the men and women of Crete, to be similarly minded. And so men were often violent. Zeus was violent. He took whatever he wanted by as much force as it took. And women were often sexually promiscuous. I mean, Paul's saying, listen, it's important how you use your sexuality. We learned that in 1 Thessalonians when he said to be holy is to be pure sexually is to use your sexuality the way God would have it used. And in Greco-Roman world, it's whatever you wanted. And that was okay. And Paul says, no, no, no. That's not what Jesus would have you do. Not at all. That's not respecting someone else. That's not loving someone else. Putting yourself above all is hurtful and destructive to those around you, and Jesus would not have you act that way. And so the older men and the older women are supposed to model this sober-mindedness, this self-control to those coming after them, so that those coming after them, when they become the older men and women, can do the same thing for the next set and for the next set. And do you see what this type of a church could be? Do you see how powerful that could be? Got to wrap this up. So quickly going to move over to the next. The next area that Paul calls Titus to develop this gospel-centered church, this gospel-centered community, the next area where Paul says there can be a huge impact for the kingdom. And that is through humble and loving engagement with society. He started off by saying, the church has to have godly leadership. Then he said there has to be grace-fueled interpersonal relationships within the community of Christ. It has to happen. 
And then that should all lead to humble and loving engagement with the society at large, with those around them. It says this, uh, he's, uh, Paul writes this in chapter 3, remind them then, after all of this, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. And then you'll notice he goes into the presentation of the gospel. How we engage with those around us, with our society, with our culture, those who know Christ and those who don't, how we engage with those in the church, out of the church, it will tell others and those who are watching what we really think about the gospel of Jesus. How you engage outwardly says what you think about the gospel. Here's how I know that's true. Because in verse four of chapter three, when Paul's starting out giving the gospel, he says, here's the reason God would save anyone. For kindness, for love. Jesus, God didn't need to save any of us. He was complete. He is complete. It's not deserved, it's not earned, it's not owed. It's simply out of his good pleasure to be kind and loving. And so how we engage with others, if we engage in that same mindset, it points to the fact that we understand the gospel. And not just understand it, we truly believe it. In the Bible, when it comes to belief, it's not just some sort of intellectual assent. It never is. It's assent plus how I act. Oftentimes when we say belief in our culture, we say, yeah, I believe that. That means, yes, I agree with that. Or I get that, or I understand that. And oftentimes it's not followed up with, now here's me acting on it. Here's me acting consistently with what I said, I believe. And Paul says, Titus, you need to be teaching the Christians on Crete to act in a way that is consistent with their belief in the gospel. If you do that, if you do these things, I'm pretty sure Paul was convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ would make an impact on Cretan society. Would it completely redeem it? Would it completely change it? Probably not. But would it have such a foothold that people couldn't help but have to make a decision about Jesus. I see this community around me and they live differently. Their people love each other. They live for something greater than themselves and they keep talking about this guy named Jesus. Why are they so different? Titus's job was to develop and encourage a gospel-centered community that loved its members internally and extended that same love and humility externally to those in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus. Will we do the same in our time, in our day, in our culture, in our society? 
in our church will we do the same? Will we have godly leadership? Will we have deeply connected interpersonal relationships based on kindness and love of the gospel? And will we treat everyone out there with that same loving kindness, with that same humility that Christ treated you and me? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this morning and this opportunity to come before you and to worship. Father, I pray that your spirit would be moving in our hearts. And Father, what you have for us from your word would take root. Father, I pray that as we engage with these things, as we engage with Paul's writings, that we look more like Jesus than we did before that. Father, show us where we can love each other well and love others well and love you above all. And I ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.